Private Lender Podcast, Episode 45. The Private Lender Podcast quote of the day comes to us from Benjamin Graham, who said, The individual investor should act consistently as an investor and not as a speculator. This is the Private Lender Podcast, the show that shares practical advice and know-how for new and seasoned lenders, from private mortgages on single-family houses to joint ventures on commercial projects and beyond. Discover details about investment vehicles that you won't find at your local bank or online broker. Listen and learn from private lenders and real estate investors, as well as from professionals and entrepreneurs, as they share the details, strategies, and the insight that allows for successful and prosperous lending. Now, get ready to increase your ROI. Here's your host, Keith Baker. How you doing, Linda Nation? Welcome to the Private Lender Podcast, the only podcast dedicated to providing education and real-world case studies involving the most passive form of real estate investing there is, private mortgage lending. You're listening to episode 45, and I'm your host, Keith Baker. It is my mission to create an alternative economy where people like you and I can confidently invest and build wealth with old-world pragmatism and without banks or Wall Street. Today, I have the good fortune to interview Mr. Kevin Smith, who is a licensed real estate inspector in the state of Texas, who just happens to be my go-to inspector. Because Kevin's been around for a good long while, he's done a lot of inspections, and he explains things in very simple and digestible terms, and because every private lender needs at least one good inspector on their team of professionals. Uh, and they are the eyes and ears for investors and lenders. But before we get to my conversation with Kevin, I need to do some housekeeping and to pay some bills. This episode of the Private Lender Podcast is proudly sponsored by CountyTaxSaleApp.org. With CountyTaxSaleApp.org, you get a very powerful lead generation tool in the palm of your hand, on your laptop, desktop, or any device you choose. Get real-time alerts for between 300 and 600 properties every month that are coming up for the foreclosure auction in Harris County, Texas, the third largest county in the United States. With this intuitive design and interface, the County Tax Sale app lets you search all properties with highly motivated sellers that are coming up for foreclosure auction. Simply search the map and click on a property to learn important details about that property, such as the address, owner's contact info, minimum bid, and a street view photo. You can save properties to your favorites and contact the sellers directly and receive email and text alerts if one of your favorite properties is redeemed or canceled prior to the auction. You can even listen to Sammy Gupta on episode 28 of this podcast as he discusses all the powerful features and benefits of CountyTaxSaleApp.org. For more information, go to the Private Lender Podcast sponsor page, the show notes page for this episode, or to CountyTaxSaleApp.org. That's CountyTaxSaleApp.org. And I'd like to give a shout out and a thank you to Sammy Gupta over at CountyTaxSaleApp.org for their sponsorship of this episode. And I highly encourage you to go check out CountyTaxSaleApp.org where you can get foreclosure leads, motivated seller leads for just like less than three cents a day. Pretty good deal. And I'd also like to thank Landon and Ray over at 713 RIA for their continued sponsorship of the Private Lender Podcast. Highly recommend if you're ever in the Houston area, go check out 713 RIA on the second Wednesday of every month at the Holiday Inn Express, 125 Airtex Boulevard at I-45 North. Okay, so now the bills have been paid Let's get on to the housekeeping. And if you would like more information about the upcoming Private Lender Academy, if you'd like to provide some input, if you'd like to be a beta tester in exchange for a free education, please go to privatelenderacademy.com, enter your email address and get on the waiting list. And you can rest assured that I will treat your email address and or cell phone number, mobile phone number, like it were my own. And anyone who's gotten on my list knows 
I don't spam and I hate spam and especially really excessive emailing for people I do sign up with. I hate both those things with extreme prejudice. Take my word, but give it a shot. If you can call me out, if, if I blast you with a bunch of emails, call me out on an iTunes uh, rating, for example, or email me at Keith at privatelenderpodcast.com. But go get on the waiting list. As that the Private Lender Academy comes together, then you'll be notified of ways you can participate in, like I said, get free education in exchange for some beta testing. Okay, so here we go now. Kevin Smith, my personal property inspector, is our guest today. And some people ask, well, why does a private lender need an inspector? Well, for a couple of reasons. Sometimes it's worth having a pre-purchase inspection done on the property that is going to back your private mortgage. And then there's also construction draws, wherein you only loan the amount of the purchase to the borrower first, and then you hold the repair money or the repair budget in an escrow account. And as they do the work, they, the borrower tells Mr. Or Mr. Linder, Keith, I've done the roof and the foundation. I'd like to pull my first draw and get my first $15,000 to pay my contractors. At that point, I would send somebody like Kevin out, and he would look at the work, look at the scope, look at what they say has been done, look at the quality, see if it is complete. And if it is, he, he signs off on it, and then I release the funds out of escrow to pay back the borrower or to reimburse the borrower for those costs. And this can go on one, two, three, four draws, just depends on the, on the, the budget and the project. But a private lender, you can go look at it yourself and say, okay, yeah, the roof is done, the foundation's been done, but why not just hire somebody like Kevin? Because the borrower pays for that cost anyway, number one. Number two, not everyone is trained and licensed in such matters. So you want somebody who knows construction, knows the codes, knows the standards, and the way things are done to go out there and say, yep, okay, Mr. Private Lender or Mrs. Private Lender, yes, this work has been done. You can release those monies from escrow to, to reimburse the borrower. Really important person to have on your team. And a licensed real estate inspector is very important. I don't care if you're doing residential, commercial. And when commercial gets in a whole other field, but at least on the residential, single-family model right now, one to four, single-family, they're an absolute must-have on any lender's team. And I'm going to let Kevin explain more as to why that is the case. So let's go ahead and get to the interview with Kevin Smith. Lender Nation, it's my pleasure to introduce you to Kevin Smith, who's a an inspector, a state licensed real estate inspector. Kevin, welcome to the Private Lender Podcast. Well, good evening, Keith. I really appreciate you coming on. And just uh, for full disclosure, Kevin and I have done, uh, or Kevin has done a few houses for me in the past. And in fact, the, uh, the house that I'm recording this in right now was inspected by Kevin. And a good inspector is a must having the toolkit on your team for a private lender. And Kevin, you're, you've been gracious enough to come on and, and talk to us a bit. So let's start back in the beginning. Comic book number one, what's your, uh, what's your story? <laughs> okay, the background bio. Grew up in Texas, uh, Vietnam vet, bachelor's degree in English. Couldn't find a job in the English field when I graduated college, and I started working on apartments, which grew later on to me becoming a painting contract, which grew into me becoming a rehab contractor. And of course, uh, rehabs are, this is when uh, you, a contractor gets a house ready for sale, fixes everything up, puts the paint on, new hairdo, new ear bobs, uh, fresh kimono for the girl, and uh, gets it all market ready. I did uh, rehabs for about 18 years in the Houston area. I did 175 of them, 
and then I got my inspector's license, and this month makes 28 years as a licensed real estate inspector in Texas, and I have done well over 14,000 inspections today. 14,000, wow. That's quite a number. Okay, so you obviously have a background in, in construction, and, and by, well, number one, thank you for your service, and number two, you're a liberal arts brother like me. I have a degree in philosophy. When I got out of college, no, <laughs> nobody was hiring philosophers. I couldn't figure out why. So uh, <laughs> I like to read the books. You probably like the chit chat around the, uh, the coffee table in the student union. So there we are. Yeah, exactly. Like the arguments. <laughs> exactly. So I'm curious, what led you into the inspection side of things versus uh, doing the... Uh... Okay, what led me into the inspection side, uh, I tell you, Keith, I'm one of the lucky ones because I pay my bills with money I earn doing something I like for a living. I like working on houses. I like going different places. I like meeting new people. And, uh, uh, you know, the, not every day is a good day, but uh, most of them are, and uh, I, I enjoy what I'm doing. I started out, like I said, as a painting contractor and found out that I really liked doing this kind of work on houses. And uh, as it went along, I picked up more information. If I was doing a rehab and I, I had to bring in somebody else to do something I didn't know how to do, like a plumber or an electrician, I'd lay awake at night thinking about questions to ask the guy when he showed up on the job and politely ask him, can I, can I watch you do what you're doing? I'm not checking up on you, but I'm just curious and I want to learn more. And 99 people out of 100 uh, of the tradesmen were happy to share and answer my questions and say, you know, give me the little tips and techniques all along the way. So I wound up uh, with the knowledge of plumbing, the knowledge of an electric of electrical work, how to change appliances, how to pick sheetrock, you know, all the things that you're going to run into. Uh, already knew how to paint, so uh, all of those rolled up into me being pretty familiar with single-family residential housing. Somebody uh, called me at a called me over to Rich Club meeting and said, well. Why don't you become an inspector? And I said, well, what's that? <laughs> so uh, I found out what it was, and I took all the classes, and I took the state exam and became an inspector, started out doing inspections while I was still doing rehabs, and uh, gradually, within about the first eight or nine months, I was able to uh, stop doing the rehabs and just focus full-time on the inspections. Interesting. Okay. Right now, uh, I work for... My focus is investment real estate. That's what I'm familiar with. That's uh, how I built my book of business. Uh, I understand investment real estate. As we said before, I'm an investor myself, and I understand what investors are looking for, what they're trying to do. Uh, I don't. Uh, I don't write inspection reports that uh, where I'm the only one that gets paid on the deal. I take my clients, my investors, out onto the property whenever they can make it, so I can take them around as I'm doing the inspection. And I teach them and I show them. I say, this is good and why, and this is bad and why. Uh, you need to put this in because it's missing. You need to tear this out because it's a, it's a piece of junk. And an example of that would be like a, a patio cover or a hot tub that doesn't work that you're going to have to put 1500 or $2,000 into to get to work again. So I'm very conscious of profit margins and returns on investment and uh, just how the investor looks at the property, whether he's fixing it up for sale or for rental. And that's why you've done so many houses for me because of that. I remember the first one you did for me was in Baytown and I wasn't able to be there. And so when I did get to come and meet you at the property, when you were inspecting it and walk through it, it really went a long way for me to understand. I mean, it really makes the, the written word and the photos on the page come alive when you're reading that report. Sure it does, because when you get up next to it and touch it and smell it and see what's going on there and watch it fall off the side of the house, then you understand well, this is why we this is what we do for maintenance on the house. If you're going to keep 
you know, especially for rental properties, because investors buy properties and become landlords. And if that's, uh, you know, if that's your end game for real estate investment, that's perfect for you. But you got to understand, or, or landlords have to understand that one fine day, you're going to want to divest yourself of the asset. And in the, that might be 5, 10, 20 years from now. But in the meantime, you have to maintain that asset. You have to uh, you know, kick things cocked up so the weather doesn't get in. You got to make sure that all the health and safety considerations have been dealt with. You want to make sure that the roof stays in good condition so you don't get water in the house. And there's some things that you can do along the way, like with your heating and air conditioning systems, that uh, will help the systems last longer. And that's the kind of information that I share when I'm on the property doing an inspection for an investor. You touched on a lot of things I'd like to kind of unpack if we have the time. So sure. I, I, if we can, let's just start uh, from 30,000 foot view. We'll, we'll get down into uh, the nitty gritty of, uh, you know, draw, inspection draws and whatnot for, for private lenders or hard money lenders. But oh yeah, let's start off again, high level view. You're, what is your job in the a real estate transaction? My job in the real estate in transaction is to make sure that the buyer is informed about the condition of the property that he's buying so he can make a, a, a rational decision about what his offer is going to be. If I come in and say the, uh, uh, say the investor, oh, he might be a chemical engineer, he might be an accountant, she, his wife might be a nurse, or it could be a single lady, school teacher, a social worker, whatever, a doctor. But their expertise is in other areas. My expertise is in single-family residential construction and the maintenance and repair of single-family residential construction. So I can explain to them in words that they'll understand without the jargon uh, just what has to happen to the property. If I come in for a person that doesn't know anything about construction, they want to do some investing, they don't know about how to check the uh, heating and air conditioning or make an assessment of the roof or evaluate the foundation, whether it needs repair or not. But when the lender comes out and he says, oh, you know, this needs foundation work, most mortgage companies are not inclined to write a mortgage on a property that has uh, structural problems, foundation problems, leaky roof, that sort of thing. So my job is to observe and report on the condition of the property. And uh, that's what I do for the investors or for the buyers. Very good. And just as a side note, uh, my primary residence, you put in your report that there was some failure in the facade of the brick and you recommended an engineer come out and take a look at it. And also with the pool, there was, you know, you said, mm -hmm. and then you recommended uh, a few folks. And fortunately, both the engineer and the pool guy came out and said, this is uh, cosmetic. It's no big deal. It's not a structural issue. Your pool is fine. And no, you're and the, uh, the engineer that came out said that, um, no, it's, you just need to tuck point, fill in your mortar on your brick and that's it. And but that's the beauty because that was, you know, my wife was just fell in love with the house. Uh, and as an investor, you, oh, know, wonderful. Yeah. you should never get emotional or romantic about a property. But uh, since this was our, our residence, my wife loved it. And I told her, I said, look, if the pool or the brick is bad, we're staying away because that's just too uh -huh. much. And yeah, but it worked out. And it was taking your lead. I was able to figure that out. It cost a little more money up front. But you know what? I got the loan. I sleep better now knowing that it's just a cosmetic issue on both fronts. So. Yeah, I recommend other professions like a structural engineer or an electrician, probably 15 to 20 houses out of 100. So it's if there's a lot of foundation movement and uh, I assess and evaluate that and tell you where the movement is and how much the movement is, and then recommend a, a structural engineer or qualified foundation repair contractor. I don't do pools, so I say, Get the pool guy in here, anybody from anybody that you know of or can get a referral from, 
a pool supply or pool repair company to come out and have a look at it. And what I recommend for the investors is that if there's a pool or a hot tub, uh, ask these people for a pool school. And a pool school is where they come out and they show you how to operate all the equipment. They show you uh, minor repairs that you can do for yourself. And they, they explain to you when something is a major item and that you're going to have to call in the big boys with the, the knowledge and the experience to fix that. But I want to make sure that the investors and my other clients, my retail clients, that they understand what they're getting into. I provide information for them to get a, uh, for them to make a decision. And so filling in the, the blanks where they don't have that background or that training. But it's like, if I have a legal question, I call my attorney. If I have an accounting question, I call my CPA. I don't have to get a degree in accounting and sit for the CPA exam, and I don't have to go to law school. So I rent that expertise, and when I call them up, I ask my question. They give me the answer, and I say, how much do I owe you? I write the check, and there's a smile on my face because I got it figured out. I got the problem solved, and uh, I can go ahead and move on from there. Same way with an inspection. You're going to spend a couple of hundred dollars getting a house inspected, but if you don't understand what's going on with residential construction, and you don't understand how to evaluate, you know, it's, it's certainly not a crime. It just means that you have experience in a different area. I was with a, a client yesterday, a lady who's, who's a profession is she is a, a master social worker, and she deals with eating disorders. Now, she doesn't know about her air conditioner or roof or any of that stuff, and I don't know about eating disorders. I told her, you know, I couldn't sit down at your desk and do your job not for the first five minutes, nor could you do mine. So I'm here to help. And one of the things I always tell my clients at the end of the inspection is, I want you to call me if you have any questions at all, especially if you think it's a silly question, because that's what I'm here for. I'm here to answer your question. You're paying for this information. I want to make sure that you have everything I can possibly give you to help you make the decision about whether or not you're going to move forward on the property, whether this is going to be your personal residence or if this is going to be an investment property. And if it's going to be a property you're going to rehab and flip, which means you're going to fix it all up and sell it out on the, on the retail market. There are some special considerations with that. If you're going to use it as a rental property, then uh, you might not have to go quite as far. Uh, for instance, if the roof's got three or four years left on it, if you're going to sell it, you're probably going to want to replace it when it gets down to about three years like that or starts needing repairs. But if it's going to be a rental property, you might hold on, you might put off replacing that roof for two years or so until you build up a little capital reserve, a capital reserve being money that you take from the income stream every month and put it aside for things like replacing roofs and replacing water heaters and turning the property over so that when it comes time to do these sort of things, that you'll have some money and you don't have to reach into your pocket to get it. And that's a great distinction. I'm glad that you brought it up in the terms of when you purchase a house and what your exit strategy is, if it's going to be a sale, a retail sale, fix and flip, or a rental, are there, and I'm going to go ahead and my listeners know that I asked a silly question. So I, since you've encouraged me, I'm going to, I'm going to go ahead and ask one, but I know with rental, for example, rental properties, there are codes, city, county codes, ground fault circuit interrupters, for example, is there a difference between the condition of a house for retail sale versus renting out from your perspective, when you go in and look at a property, are you, do you look with one set of uh, glasses for if you, you know it's going to be a retail sale or a retail, say, uh, an owner-occupant versus the a rental? Or is there a, do you differentiate at all? I don't differentiate, Keith. And, and here's what I do. I want to evaluate the property 
and all the systems and all the parts of the house. Now, after I've done that and informed the uh, the client about this needs to be replaced or that's doing just fine, they'll say, look, uh, you got one corner of the foundation that's down. You're probably going to need five piers in there. Now, as long as the, the windows and the doors are still operating, you may want to put this off until you've done a client uh, uh, a renter cycle, which means you've had a renter in there for a couple of years and you've built up a little uh, a little capital reserve and and it's not so much a strain on on your budget to go ahead and repair the house. But if you're going to sell the house, you really need to bring everything up. It's not uh, these trek inspections, Texas Real Estate Commission inspections are not code inspections. They're mainly based on health and safety issues and performance issues. Is it safe to live here? Ground fault interrupters, always got to go in in the places that they're specified. We have to make the place safe and habitable, a good and habitable safe condition for the people who are going to live there. And we got to basically make sure that everything is working and everything is safe. And, you know, you'd put your own mother in the house and not be afraid that it was going to burn down overnight. But as far as selling the house, again, you're in competition with uh, new houses, other houses that have been rehabbed. And so you're going to want to bring it up right to the top of the line. You're going to want to take the worst-looking house in the neighborhood and bring it up to where it's looking better than the other houses in the neighborhood that might be for sale so that uh, it'll stand out. I mean, it's like uh, like at the prom in high school. The girl wears a shabby dress, and she's looking at her shoes and doesn't have her hair done, doesn't have any makeup on. She's not going to get asked to dance as much as uh, the girl that took a little time to fix herself up and makes herself presentable and attractive to uh, to the public. Same way with houses for sale. You got to make them presentable. You got to make them take care of all the health and safety considerations. And you're going to want to make make it easy for people to buy. It's got to be clean. Everything has to work and uh, make it so that they would be happy to live there. And it doesn't really matter whether the house is going to sell for $100,000 or $450,000 as long as everything is working and uh, it's been all cleaned up and fixed up uh, uh, for that neighborhood, for that market. What you've touched on is uh, is great because you, you do have the investment background. When people talk about rehabbing, uh, a friend of mine came to me and said, hey, I'd like to flip some homes. And, you know, what advice can you give me? And one of the pieces of advice was take the worst house in the neighborhood, make it look like the best house, but price it slightly below. That way you get a quick sale and don't chase those pennies, but just time is money. And having an inspector that comes from that background, I think, is is invaluable and if we can, I'd like to kind of switch gears from and get a little more granular. And to me, an inspector is an absolute behind an attorney. An inspector is a must for a private lender because you should never loan the rehab money budget to the borrower at closing, but you know hold it back in escrow and then agree on a schedule of draws, two or three or four, however the project is. So I'd like to shift gears and the value that an inspector brings to someone like me because. I do have a construction background, both residential and commercial. I myself was a painter for several years. So I got through college. Uh, how, that's how I got that philosophy degree, actually. Is, yeah, but you know, do, I also did make readies and maintenance uh, in the college town, you know, apartments and, and houses and whatnot. So I have that background. But let's say, like you said, let's say someone has, uh, has some other profession. It could be whatever it is. And they're nervous about loaning on a house that needs work. That's why banks won't loan on a house that needs work, right? They want a house that's ready and pretty and ready to go. So the inspector becomes the eyes, the ears, the nose, and the fingertips for not only the, the investor, but the private lender in that case. So I know you, you do some draw inspections. So can you 
kind of walk us through a typical, like if you're working for a hard money or a private lender? Okay. I've done a lot of those. They're called draw inspections or compliance inspections. And this is the gospel that I preach. It's called scope and budget. Scope of work is a complete, total, and absolute list of everything that you're going to do on the project. And the budget is a line item budget. It's like, Ruth, so many dollars, say $4,000. Sheetrock repair, $600. Interior painting, so much. Right down to the cabinet pulls, the drawer pulls. How much are you going to spend on that? Are you going to do landscaping? How much for the landscaping? And there are punch lists like this that are all over the Internet. And I use an Excel spreadsheet that's modeled after American Institute of Architects draw inspection sheet. And what we do is right down the left side goes the scope of work. In the column right next to that goes the projected budget. So when you're doing the draw inspections or compliance inspections, uh, let me back up just a, a second to kind of define that for the folks that are just coming into this, into real estate. Draw inspection is when the contractor says, well, I've got the roof on and I've got the sheetrock work done and I need some money to pay the guys. Okay, so the draw inspector will go out to the house and he will inspect the roof and make sure that it is installed in a workmanlike manner and that it is fully, completely, and absolutely installed. And then he'll, get, then, uh, he'll recommend, the, the inspector will recommend to the lender that they release those funds that have been escrowed for the roof repair and the sheetrock repair. Now, the way I do it is I have this Excel spreadsheet and everybody's got it. The contractor has a copy of it. The lender has a copy of it. And I have a copy of it. And every time we do a draw inspection, it goes into a new column. And we just add up and down at the bottom of that column, we add up everything that uh, has been fully and completely completed in a workmanlike manner. And that's what the contractor gets as a draw. Now, when the reason that this is so important is it, uh, it resolves a lot of questions before they arise. It keeps everybody up to date on what's been done and what's been paid out. And you don't have this uh, discussion, shall we say, about, no, you didn't pay me for that. You paid me for this other thing. Well, no, here, here's where you got paid. Uh, here's what you still have left. Well, I can't do it for that amount of money. Well, that's the amount of money that you said you're going to do it for. The scope and the budget starts out when you're looking at the house, deciding whether you're going to take the property or not. You begin to make up a list of things that you're going to do. Okay, needs a new front door, needs exterior paint, needs some touch-up on the inside. We're going to put carpets in. We're going to put a new dishwasher in. And so these are all part of the scope of work. And you want a full, complete, and absolute scope of work so you know exactly what to ask for contractors for pricing on. And it also builds your draw schedule. So I can't emphasize how important that is. I've seen investors go into properties and they say, well, you know, it's probably going to cost us twelve or $15,000 to do this property. And they get in there and they find it. And then when the whole thing is uh, all said and done, they spent twenty dollars or $25,000. It hurts my stomach to watch investors do things like that. That's why I like to have them on site when I do the inspection so I can point all this stuff out to them. Oh, we didn't realize that. Or, oh, you know, I thought I was going to have to spend $25,000 to put the new heating and air conditioning system in. Well, no, you're probably looking at $8,000 for a, for a serviceable system, heating and air conditioning on this. But the scope and the budget, it stops problems. It stops arguments. It keeps everybody on the same page. The contractor knows what he's got coming. And when I do these draw inspections, I go out there with my spreadsheet, and I have a list of things that I'm going to draw on. I take pictures. And uh, the evening of the inspection, I send all my reports out the evening of the inspection. 
I send it back to the lender, whether it's a hard money lender or a private lender, and say, this is what's been done. Here are the pictures of it. And I recommend that uh, these funds be released to escrow so that uh, the contractor can move on. He's got to pay his guys, and he's got to buy materials for the next part. So that's the value of the scope and the budget. It's, uh, it, it really kind of governs the job. And without that, I mean, it's really difficult to manage a project because you never know where you are in the project. You don't know what the contractor's got coming. You say, oh, let me look at my checkbook and see how much I've paid him so far. So that's kind of how that works and keeps everybody on the same page. You can't really manage a project without some kind of a plan for it. I mean, it's like the difference between writing a research paper and writing a letter to mom. A research paper is going to have some kind of an outline where you start out and uh, some kind of framework. I tell people that you've really got to have this or you're not going to know where you're going to wind up and you're going to wind up doing things that cost you a lot of money. One of the things that I do on uh, my inspections with investors is I say, this is the order of the work. This is the rhythm of the work. For instance, if there's foundation work that's necessary, you've got to start out by fixing the foundation. Don't do any sheetrock work. Don't do any painting. Don't do any carpentry work. Don't put a new roof on. You got to do the foundation first because everything sits on the foundation. And if they jack the foundation up, wiggle it back around and put it back where it started out when the house was built, you can get new cracks in the sheetrock. And if you just put a brand new roof on the house, you will see little rings, little ripples moving across the roof of your brand newly installed roof. And the only cure for it is to take that brand new roof off and put another roof on it. So that's the kind of uh, information I like to give my investors so that they don't spend money that they don't have to, and they don't make costly mistakes. It's a great point. And I remember the rhythm of the work was a handout that you gave out at the Rich Club, Realty Investment Club of Houston. If I, I love, I still have it. I put it in a three ring binder. Well, because even though I, I was a construction manager for a short time, uh, we had our big three ring binder book, but it, you condensed it down onto one page with nice little bullet points, basically, of saying, look, this is, this is what you're going to do. And it's just, it's a great refresher because if you get excited about a project, it's like, oh yeah, let's go. Oh no, no, wait, no. Let's make sure that the uh, foundation is good. And I, I like, it. I also like how you put, you know, do the landscaping and get the curb appeal as soon as possible, you know, after that, just so that it's not an eyesore. But one of the things, and this is for a private lender, obviously a good attorney is, is crucial. You want your documents good. But for me, the inspector is as well, because let's do some simple math. There's a house that's going to be worth $100,000 after it's all fixed up and the bow is put on top of it. Most lenders will not go above sixty-five or seventy thousand dollars total money lent out on that property. So you've got to let's say for easy math, there's there's fifty thousand dollars to purchase the property and twenty thousand dollars to fix it up. Well, and this is why I say you no, know, never loan that full seventy out because I've heard of the horror stories of you know, yep, I loaned seventy thousand dollars on a house and when I or I foreclosed on it, come to find out it was only worth fifty because that's what was paid for it. You know, that's why you know as a lender. I mimic the hard money in the banks and that when you submit, whether it's, you know, if it's a formal application or if it's, you know, through a friend uh, that I've loaned to before, some of the documents that I, besides, uh, you know, a good title commitment is I want to see the scope of work and I want to, you know, at a minimum, you know, depending on the property, at a minimum, I want my inspector to at least look at it, a desktop review and with the photos. I offer a couple of uh, alternatives on the inspections for investors. One is a full written inspection in compliance with the standards of practice of the Texas Real Estate Commission, which governs inspectors. And the other is what I call a site visit, a verbal report. I do not write a report. The investor follows me through, 
and I tell them what to write down, what to fix. It's the same inspection as the, the one with the written report, but I don't write the report, and there is a discount for that. If they want to write down what I tell them, if they feel comfortable with that and ask all their questions, and I'll give them all the information that I can give them, then uh, we can do it that way. If you're just moving into real estate investment, you're probably going to want written reports. If you're going back to the lender or going back to the seller and you feel you still have some negotiation to do, then a written report is uh, is the way to go. And the reason for that is you have a uh, you have a license on that report. So this is not just – it's the difference between a contractor who says, yeah, I'm going to fix this and I'm going to fix that. He doesn't cover all the points that the, the inspection does. They'll say, yeah, I'm going to paint it and uh, we're going to put a roof on it. We're going to do this and that. Well, that might not meet the needs. Uh, in order to sell the place if it doesn't address all the health and safety issues and the performance issues. So there's a big difference there. And when it comes down to the bank, you can show the bank a proposal, uh, and it, it might carry some weight, but a real estate inspection from a licensed inspector, licensed to practice in the state that you're uh, uh, you're investing in, makes all the difference in the world. They say, oh, yeah, this guy is trained. This guy has experience. This guy has sat for the exam. This guy renews his license and has to have MCE hours, mandatory continuing education every year. And he has to keep up with his trade and the, and the practice that he's involved in. That is a help to – once the investor has like, oh, three to five houses under their belt, they feel a lot more comfortable if they just do a verbal inspection and they can save a little money there because they understand, oh, yeah, you got to tear this out. you got to put this back in and say, oh, yeah, I did that two houses ago. Say the electrician needs to look at this, and you say, Oh, yeah, I use Luis all the time, and Luis does a, an excellent job for me. So I'll just get him to come over here and take a look at this. And I'll get some numbers. Another thing that I'm, I'm really aware of when I'm talking to investors is no jargon, no construction jargon. Like I can talk to the, uh, the nurse, the social worker, the accountant uh, about equipotential bonding. And they're going to look at me like I've got lobsters growing out of my ears. If I tell them, hey, you know, we've got to ground some of these things. We've got to connect some stuff up with some wires or some pipes and uh, uh, gas lines and things like that. But we need to connect together with the wire in a certain way and bring it back to a certain spot in case of a lightning strike or in case there's a short circuit or stuff like that. Let's say, you know, a short circuit, for instance, like the ground fault interrupters, the little outlets that you have with the buttons in them next to the sinks and in the garage and outside, a short circuit is electricity travels along a path normally. If it gets off that path, they call that a short circuit. And the problem with a short circuit is somebody can get shocked or they can get electrocuted. So I like to keep it nice and simple. I don't like to offend anybody's intelligence, but I do want them to understand everything that I have to offer and everything that the, uh, the house has to say for itself that they need to be aware of to make a rational decision about making an offer on the house, whether they should go ahead with it or not. Yeah, that's, uh, I'm glad, and thank you for uh, going over what the GFIs are. I, I forgot, yeah, the, the little buttons that go out at the wrong time when you're trying to put your Christmas lights up or <laughs> whatever. Yeah, exactly. Which brings me back to, as an inspector, do you look and stay on top of construction codes, current construction codes, I should say? I used to, but I don't have the time to take all the classes that are necessary to keep up to date code certification. But as long as the health and safety issues have been resolved and that those specifications are in the Texas Real Estate Commission standards of practice for investors or inspectors. And so we have to abide by those. We know what the health and safety issues are. Uh, unless you're a code inspector, you might not know that, uh, oh, you need a 
Well, that pertains mostly to houses that are brand new built. And I don't do very many of those inspections. There's a lot of inspectors that do brand new built houses. But, uh, uh, and there's briefly, there's a thing called a phase inspection. Phase inspection starts out with just before the pour the concrete for the foundation. And then there's a second phase inspection where the inspector comes out just before they put the sheetrock up. And it's called a cover inspection. And then there's a third inspection, which is called the final inspection with everything's done, the house is ready to move into, and all of the appliances have been installed. And that, that's where I come in on new houses. But as far as, uh, as, far as code, a Texas Real Estate Commission is not meant to be a code inspection. If the investor is specifically wants a code inspection for some reason, then I can refer to them to, uh, to somebody that does that as a part of their practice. And I know a lot of investors shy away from code enforcement because we're notoriously cheap people to begin with by nature. But when what I called my eight-year flip it was um, really it was, it was a house hacking. It was the first property that my wife and I bought after we got married. And I had, you know, it was inspected. But when we, we flooded and we did a major rehaul, uh, overhab, overhaul, oh, yeah. it's not an engine, sorry. When we did a major rehab paid for by FEMA, thank you, National Flood Insurance Program, I went ahead, I made a decision. I said, you know what? We're inside the city limits of Houston. I'm going to go ahead and go down and get a homeowner's permit and do everything above board. And I'm glad I did because at the end of the day, even though I had uh, all, my, all my green tags and everything, I got red tagged for having uh, number 12 Romex when I needed, or I'm sorry, number 14 when I needed number 12 in one of the light switches, which I wouldn't have, uh, me being the homeowner, yes, I, I can pull my own license, but I still have to have license. I mean, sorry, my own permit, but I still have to have licensed contractors. And then they red tagged me on the HVAC uh, when I replaced the unit in the attic because the elbow, yeah, I had the copper pipe. The elbow wasn't covered with insulation with the black. Oh, yeah. yeah. And I was like, if that's all they're going to hit me for, then that's great. But when it came time to sell, I was able to hand over all of my green tags, even the red tags, over to the buyer. And I said, here you go. And here are all the receipts. Here are all the warranties. I handed everything over. And like, it was one of the most smoothest sales processes I've ever seen in my life because I had all that documentation. If you have all that documentation, that's like lubrication for the house sale. You mentioned mold and flooding for the people outside of the Houston area. Hurricane Harvey came through in last year, 2017, in August, and uh, it either destroyed or damaged 130,000 houses in the Houston area, the Houston Metroplex. Now, there are a lot of people that came in and said, oh, yeah, we can fix this up for you, and they tore the sheetrock out, they tore out the insulation, they fixed some things, and they made it look pretty again, but if they didn't remediate the mold properly, that's one thing I'm really kind of concerned about in in the, the Houston Metroplex area is this issue of mold and mildew. Uh, briefly, mold needs three things. It needs uh, temperature 65 degrees. It needs a source of food, which is cellulose. It can be paper or uh, wood, or it can grow on a lot of different things. And it also needs uh, moisture. So if you remove any of those three things, it goes into a dormant state. Like if you pull the, uh, the sheetrock and the insulation out of the walls, and there's mold and mildew there, then that has to be treated with a biocidal agent. And biocidal agent is something that kills the mold and mildew. Because what happens, we find, um, is that the mold goes into a spore state if it does not have any moisture. A spore state is, means the little mold cells get a skin around them, like the skin on an orange. And it'll stay there for years and years and just sit and waiting patiently uh, until it gets wet again. Like if you have a leak around a window, 
or your roof starts to leak and water runs down the wall or something, gets on the inside of the wall. As soon as the water hits that mold, it's going to come back to life again. It's going to pop that spore casing open, and it's going to start to multiply, and all of a sudden you have a mold issue again. So I said I was really concerned about uh, mold remediation in Houston, and we could do another hour on that. But uh, basically, if the house was not properly remediated and uh, you had air quality tests before and after the, uh, the remediation, then uh, you're traveling on really thin ice. Because 10 years from now, somebody's kid gets a sniffle and they call one of these middle-of-the-night attorneys, you know, the hammer that does the tractor-trailer accidents, and he will sue right back up the chain of title. It might have sold three times in 10 years, and they'll go back and say, oh, you sold it, you bought it from Joe and, and, and Ellen. Okay, you go talk to Joe and Ellen and say, hey, it was fixed up when I got it. Okay, Sam and Martha are the ones we bought it from. Oh, yeah, Kevin and Keith are the ones that did this back in 2017. And did you have your mold remediation? And did you have it inspected by a, a licensed sanitarian or a mold assessment consultant, two different licenses in the state of Texas, to determine that the amount and the amounts of mold that are present were not a health and safety issue? And molds, mold is like, uh, oh, cancer cells. We all have cancer cells in our body, but not really enough to cause a problem. It's the amount of the population. How many are there? I mean, do we have 200,000 mold cells in the house, or do we have 45 million mold cells in the, inside the house? And that's what's going to make the difference. So uh, it's important that you, you bear that in mind when you're doing these houses that have been flooded or had water in it for some reason. And that's a very good point because I remember, I guess it was about 20 years ago, when black mold, you know, before it was excluded under homeowner policies. Yeah, even even actually I, into the late 90s, uh, when I was still active and in, in, heavily active in construction and whatnot. But so many homes, you would see that they just, you know, they got gutted, they ripped everything out. And the two words black mold were like a death sentence to a house. And then so, yeah, as, as I would work on things, you know, and look, and look, and I'm no expert. Let me go ahead and get that out there. But I know that there is a distinction between mold and mildew. And mildew is what is seen oftentimes as readily available to see on the outside of a house, for example. And mold will be more along your stud. You get a, a plumbing supply, a water line leak or whatever it drips. Like you said, now you're dripping water on wood in an air, in an air conditioned environment, you know, in a cool environment. And it can definitely support and promote mold growth. But I think I will take you up on that offer because there are, we're just over as recording this, we're just a little over a year past uh, Hurricane Harvey. And those numbers were staggering. And I mean, the, the sheer amount of water, you know, it's, but it's funny because you know, Houston is such a humid area to begin with, even on, in, on a dry summer, August day, quote unquote dry, it's very humid. So I've always told people that there's mold and mildew in every single house in Houston, even if it was built yesterday, <laughs> you know, but I would like to bring you back on at some point. Yeah, I think, and, and let's talk about that because as an investor, whether you're you know, the active rehabber or landlord or as a private lender, that is a concern because of, like you said, the, uh, uh, I'm sorry, what did you say? The, uh, the late night attorney or, uh, and, and we all know the, the Texas hammer there. <laughs> and um, I might have to put his commercial on the website just for giggles. But. <laughs> He's probably a guy from Chicago anyway. I don't know. But it's it's very true, though, that they will sue up the chain of title, you know, all the way back to whoever they, they could. And that's why, even though I tell my investor friends, look, I know, you know real estate investors are notoriously cheap, but the more our society gets litigation happy, and I'm going to sue a turkey sandwich next week, and I'm probably going to win. You know, I mean, that's how crazy it's getting. Well, so. You know, if you, you get the right jury, you get the right attorney, uh, yeah. 
Oh yeah. You'll get a huge settlement. So watch out Oscar Meyer. But anyway, no, I'm kidding. But, uh, but you know, to me, it's CYA. And look, does every house need to be fully inspected and have all these things, all these certifications? No, I'm not going to sit there and, and tell people that. But that comes with experience. As you get more involved, you're going to notice, okay, yeah, well, let's go ahead and get an inspection on that, for example. Or let, let's get the, the moldy air quality checked or so on and so forth. Any house that's been water damaged, oh, just put some bleach on it. It'll be fine. Well, not, not necessarily the case. That is not true. Yeah. So, so you can't just put bleach on it. Uh, let me interject two things here Sure. about the bleach. Bleach is a heavy metal, and when it hits those cells, they say, oh, this is nasty stuff. This is a heavy metal, and I'm not going to let it within my cell wall. If you dilute the bleach, a gallon of water and a cup of bleach, and spray that on, that will kill most of it because the, the mold and the mildew says, oh, yeah, this is water. I need water to live, and it will let it within the cell wall, and then the uh, the chlorine will dissolve the cell wall and, and burst its little nucleus apart. The other thing is, in dealing with houses that you know have had water in them, even if it's, oh, we had two inches of water or three inches of water, and it was in here for about six hours, and then it went out, and we replaced the baseboards, and we replaced the carpet, and everything's fine. Well, let me see your air quality report done by a mold assessment consultant or a registered hygienist. And I also want to see a document that's provided by the state of Texas called the Mold Remediation Certificate, or Certificate of Mold Remediation. And that has on it the license number of the people who did the, the evaluation and took the air samples and the swab samples from inside and outside the house. And it will also give you information about the lab that did the testing. You have to be an accredited lab, not just some guy uh, working on his uh, chemical engineering degree that's doing it at the at the uh, the university lab on the weekends. No, it has to be an accredited lab, and uh, there should be a report with it that tells what entities, what biological entities are present, and what the population of these entities are, and what the conclusions are to the evaluation of the samples. This is a hazardous site. This is a non-hazardous site. This is within the acceptable limits of these biological entities, so that as you go down the line, you know, when you sell the house, you can say, oh, yeah, here's my permits. Here's my mold remediation certificate. I had everything checked. Yes, it did flood. Yes, we did fix it. Here's the uh, remediation protocol. Remediation protocol is the set of instructions to the contractor about he will, what he will do to remediate the mold and repair the house and bring it back to not only a good and marketable condition, not just make it pretty, but make it safe and habitable, too. So those two things. Perfect. Great. Now, that's good information for anyone, whether you're going to live in the house or invest in the house. That, um, and that's why we hire people like you, Kevin. That's, you know, it's your, your knowledge and your expertise. We all know investors who are so tight on a house that they'll squeeze a nickel till the buffalo starts to giggle. But uh, you just, you got to, I, I had a conversation about 45 minutes long with an investor a couple of years ago. And he said, why should I have to put these smoke farms all over the place here? I said, you only need smoke alarms in the sleeping areas, in the hallways outside the sleeping areas, on each level of the house. So if it's a two-story house, you're going to need one upstairs, too, even if it's only a game room. And he argued and argued. I said, and I said, look, you can do what you want to. I've told you what you should do, and uh, that's just to help you make your decision. If that house burns down and somebody gets injured or killed, they're going to own everything that you own up to this point and everything that you're going to own for the rest of your life, especially if there's a fatality involved. So for $100 worth of smoke alarms, come on. 
I mean, you just, uh, you have to do the health and safety issues. And the rest of it is the cosmetic stuff. If you want to put new carpet in, fine. If you don't, that's fine. If you want to put hardwoods or ceramic or something else, that's fine. Those are cosmetic issues and which may or may not affect the marketability of the property. But uh, smoke alarms, ground fault interrupters, uh, whether it has aluminum wiring or not, that has to be taken care of. And uh, no, you don't have to rewire the house if you have aluminum wiring. It can be fixed. So these are the kind of things that I, that I try to make uh, investors aware of. I've been writing articles for uh, newsletters and presentations to inspectors group. I've got probably 400 articles. I've done scores of workshops. I've done 25 or 26 bus tours where we take the investors out on a bus and we take them out on the property and we walk them around the house and say, this is bad, this is good, this is what you need to look for. This is kind of like a, a mini vacation. And over the years, and investing myself, I figured out, you know, these are the things they're interested in and uh, these are the things they should know. Like, you know, if this house is going to sell for hundred dollars or $120,000, you don't want to put a $4,000 appliance package in it fancy refrigerator and a Bosch dishwasher and, and, you know, a fancy range. No, 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 no. That goes in houses that are specialty houses, $400,000, $350,000 and on up. So you have to look around and find out what your market is. And you can ask around uh, or go visit some houses yourself, talk to a real estate agent that's working in that area, say, you know, the, what, are the, what do the buyers expect in this area? So that's kind of what I have, uh, some of the stuff that I have to offer to the investors. And that's why an inspector is such a vital, vital team member to not only to a retail buyer, an investor, but also to the lender. And you said it quite succinctly. I found that the best inspectors are guys that are former rehabbers or former builders or for, former building managers for uh, one of the track tone guys, because they really understand how these houses go together. They understand how they come apart. They understand where the failures are more likely. They understand uh, about how long uh, systems last, the kind of things that you have to do to, to extend the life of the systems, and so on and so forth. I mean, we could, we could talk for hours and hours on that. But uh, The important part is that if you don't understand residential construction, you need to have somebody in there. I mean, you could start by uh, asking another investor that's more experienced, say, hey, can I tag along with you when you look at your houses today? just so I can ask you some questions. Most of the time, they'll, they'll say, well, sure, yeah, hop in the car, but you've got to buy lunch. Okay. Well, we're having lunch at Tony's, so be ready for it. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you need to get that information from somewhere. It's like if we were going to go out and work in the oil field tomorrow, we'd have to have – there's a whole different vocabulary. There's a whole different jargon. There's a whole different uh, set of systems. There are processes that we need to understand. And uh, this is all learnable. I mean, it's it's not rocket science. I mean, I've known guys that uh, didn't even have a high school education that have become multimillionaires doing real estate investment. But they, you have to know the product. And whether you pick up a hammer or a screwdriver uh, in your entire investment career, that's fine. I've known people that all they do is pick up a ballpoint pen and write checks. But you have to know when you bring somebody out there, are they doing this job correctly or not? And that's where an inspector can come in. And, and again, I tell people, when I do inspections for them, whether it's a retail account or whether it's an investor, I say, look, here's my card, here's my phone number, here's my email. I want you to call me if you have questions, especially if you think it's a dumb question, because that's what I'm here for. I'm here to give you information so you can make a rational decision. And I don't like to see you get uh, taken advantage of. And that is, that's why you're such a vital part of the whole process. You had mentioned 
you know, you've written articles in your workshops. If somebody wants to get a hold of you to get a little more information, how what's the best way for them to do that? Or if they want to hire you for an inspection? Sure. The best way to get hold of me is by my cell phone. I answer my own phone. It's hanging on my back. The number to call is 713-858-1330. That's 713-858-1330. Operators are standing by to take your call. <laughs> yeah, yep. And yeah, you do, you're right. You answer your own phone and your inspection reports always come out the evening of the, the inspection. And you do, you know, what I like is that you say what you're going to do and you do what you say. And that goes a long way. And I'm, that's why I wanted to get you on the podcast. And I'm glad that we've, uh, we've we're finally able to connect. Uh, I mean, for, for the listener, Kevin and I have been talking about this for, I guess, about close to a year. And uh, it's finally happening. Again, thank you for coming on. And I do uh, would like to plan some future shows with you as well on some specific topics where we can drill down. Oh, and, sure. I'd be glad to. And uh, one more thing before we sign off here. Uh, if you're listening to this podcast and you're not in the Houston Metroplex area, I don't care if you're in Los Angeles or Hoboken, New Jersey. If you have a question about the house and you want some information and you're not sure where to go or how to find the information, I want you to call me because I will help you. I'm investor friendly. I specialize in investment real estate and I don't like to see investors make costly mistakes. So there we are. Thank you for that. And it, it's so true. You do want to help. And that's why you're my inspector. So there it is. So yeah, take him up on his offer, people. Definitely. If you have a question, let him know. He, he, you know, even though we're down here in Houston, I know Kevin understands a lot of different types of construction and what's used up north, for example, in colder climates versus down here. So yeah, absolutely. Give him a call. Take him up on his offer. Well, Kevin, again, thank you so much. Uh, I look forward to working with you in the future. And I really look forward to having you back on another episode. Sure thing, Keith, and it's been my pleasure to uh, hopefully add to the uh, add to the knowledge of of people who are wanting to do investment real estate, whether you're just getting started or whether you've done twenty different houses. I mean, I've done a whole lot of inspections, thousands of houses, and I still see things from time to time that I have to scratch my head and I have to call people and say, "What about this? And what about that?" I'll call another inspector. I'll call an electrician. I'll call a plumber, and uh, I'll get the help I need. Don't be shy about asking questions. Great advice. Great advice. All right, Kevin. We'll see you soon. Take care. Okay, Bye bye. And there you have it, folks. I'd like to thank Kevin for coming on the show today. I hope you learned a lot from him, and you can highly recommend you take him up on his offer. You can get all of his information on the show notes page at privatelenderpodcast.com. And this will be episode 45. And I'd like to thank you for listening and ask that if you are listening and you haven't done it yet, please go rate and review this podcast so that more people like you and I can have access to it and can find it uh, easier. You can go to iTunes and Google Podcasts. Those are the two big ones. Stitcher or SoundCloud or whatever platform you use to find the Private Lender Podcast, I would greatly appreciate a rating and a review. And if you want to promote your business in the review, go right ahead. If you do, I'll read it off on an episode. And I'd also ask you to please connect with me on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, Bigger Pockets. And of course, as always, at the privatelenderpodcast.com. And I invite you to get on the waiting list, to be one of the first on the waiting list to learn how to get access to the Private Lender Academy, which I was hoping to launch in January, but we'll see if that deadline holds in the coming weeks. But you can become a beta tester in exchange for tuition to the Academy. So go to privatelenderacademy.com to get on the waiting list. And those of you who make decisions quickly and take action, like signing up for the waiting list, will be rewarded. I don't know what those rewards will be, free tuitions, discounts, special offers, 
perhaps free coaching sessions. But those of you who jump on quickly will be rewarded. Well, thanks for listening again. I wish everyone out there happy, safe, and prosperous investing and private lending. I'll see you on the next episode. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Private Lender Podcast with your host, Keith Baker. For more great content and to stay up to date, visit privatelenderpodcast.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate and review, and we'll catch you next time.